Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up on Forum, Reverend William Barber. He's co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and the MacArthur Genius Fellow, who Cornell West calls the closest person we have to Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. That's what you see in the street. It's the democracy trying to breathe and refusing to allow the policies of injustice to crush and suffocate our reality. Reverend Barber joins Forum to talk about the protests against police violence, his campaign to fight poverty, and his new book, We Are Called to Be a Movement. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Reverend William Barber believes that the country, quote, will not be the same after this pandemic and after this season of mass nonviolent protests, we cannot be the same. And Reverend Barber, who revived and co-chairs the Poor People's Campaign, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s last projects, is working to ensure transformation and change be made in America through a moral agenda that advances pro-labor, anti-poverty, and anti-racist policies. And in addition to his work with the Poor People's Campaign, he's president of the activist group Repairers of the Breach, pastor of the Greenleaf Christian Church in North Carolina, and a MacArthur Genius Award winner, as well as author of a number of books, including his latest, We Are Called to Be a Movement. And welcome, Reverend Barber. Delighted to have you with us. I'm so honored to be with you today and to be with your listening audience. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you, and it's also a very solemn moment, uh, the funeral for uh, George Floyd is about to begin and may have even already begun. And I have to ask you, just sort of going off of a sermon you gave fairly recently when you said now is the time to revive the heart of America's democracy, especially in light of the pandemic and in light of uh, George Floyd's death. What do you envision? Well, I think that we are at a point uh, when you look at all of the compounded death that we are seeing in this society and recognizing that the first principle of our Declaration of Independence is supposed to be life. And if we don't fix these issues that are causing so much death, then it means we are not, uh, we've not declared an independence. We're actually in a kind of slavery to death. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> uh, I believe we're in a moment where America uh, must realize accepting death uh, is not an option anymore. And by that, I mean death in any of its ugly ways that is caused through uh, public policy. So that can be death that is caused through uh, rogue policing and racist police violence. Uh, it can be the death that is caused when uh, studies tell us that there are 140 million people poor in this country 
and low wealth and 700 of people die a day from poverty, a quarter million a year. It can be the death that is caused by 80 million people being uninsured and underinsured, which we know thousands of people die for every half million that are uninsured. Uh, it can be the death that's caused by the fact that 4 million families get up every morning and buy unleaded gas, can't buy unleaded water. It's the death that has been caused by the negligent response, the inept response of the White House and the Senate to COVID that has, that has caused thousands of people to die that study after study say didn't have to die. Uh, lastly, it's the deaths that have been caused by people being forced to go into work and their jobs be made lethal because they didn't have the proper PPEs. They got a name change from service worker to essential worker, but the government has not given them the essentials they need. And we're in a period after seeing a lynching, a murder on camera with a cop posing almost as though over prey, that the country is in deep mourning and say, we cannot just keep accepting all of these deaths that do not have to be. There is a public policy remedy to every kind of death I just mentioned. And we could have life rather than death. And I pray that that's where we're headed. America accepting death is not an option anymore. Well, when you mention uh, the death of George Floyd being virtually a lynching or really very tantamount to being a lynching, uh, I'm struck by the number of lynchings that went on in the United States, 4,400 actually, uh, between the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. And there was a, a general sense of being inured to that. And, and you've talked about this, how it was almost accepted as being normality. We can't accept, according to you, that kind of normality anymore in terms of George Floyd's death or anything like it. No, racism has always had a DM, a death measurement. Everything racism touches, it kills. Everything extreme poverty touches, it kills. You know, racism killed or attempted to kill the reconstruction after the end of slavery. Racism killed thousands and thousands of people in this country in the Civil War. Uh, racism killed and created genocide among First Nation people. Racism uh, uh, caused the lynching. But the other side is true, too, uh, that it was the lynchings that pushed people to a place where they said no more, and you get the formation of the NAACP, you get Ida B. Wells, you get the fight, uh, the crisis in W.B. Du Bois and the fight for anti-lynching legislation, uh, the fight for it and the fight against um, the death. It was the death of Emmett Till one year after the, the Brown versus Board of Education decision and the acquittal of his murderers that pushed Rosa Parks to say, uh, because you killed Emmett Till, we now have to go after the whole system of Jim Crow. Uh, it was the death of Swanna Cheney and Goodman that made more people, more black and white and others, uh, want to come south and fight. That's why I think we have to be careful of saying we have not seen uh, this kind of you know, cross-racial organizing before. And, and it was the death of three girls in a Birmingham church 17 days after the march on Washington. That, that, that was ugly, as Dr. King said, but, it, 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 but they died nobly, and their deaths actually scared people to life. In other words, their deaths were so ugly, so brutal, that there were people who had been sitting on the fence and not really doing what they ought to do, 
and they and they were moved to do different. The death of Jimmy Lee Jackson spawned the march from Selma to Montgomery. It didn't just happen. And because Dr. King said, we have to look at not just what, who killed Jimmy Lee Jackson, but, but what. And the same is true with George Floyd. People are looking at the what, not just the who. The who is ugly enough, the racist cop, the three accessories, uh, those accessories to the crime. But George Floyd ended up on that corner because he lost his job in the midst of COVID. He didn't have decent unemployment. He didn't have paid sick leave. He went to, he had COVID himself. He was a victim of asthma that comes from some of the ways in which ecological devastation happens in the black community. He went to, to Minnesota looking for a better job. He got a job, but it was a service job that we now call an essential workers job, but it didn't have the essentials necessary for a life. So he ended up on that corner already being suffocated to some degree by the systems of injustice that caused death. And this cop, then in our names and in the name of the state, decided to just murder him on camera. We are at a point, my friend, I believe, that we need to examine the death measurement of every piece of public policy, every piece of public policy. What is the death measurement in denying health care? What is the death measurement in uh, not passing living wages? What is the death measurement in allowing corporations to poison our air and our water and our stream? What is the death measurement of voter suppression? Since when you suppress the vote, you undermine the democracy and thereby undermine progressive public policy, which could actually save people's lives. And then we must stop talking in terms of left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, but understand many public policies are literally about life versus death and whether or not you're going to choose to be on the side of life or whether you're going to choose to be on the side of death. Talking with Reverend William Barber, and he's president of Repairs the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, as well as author of a new book called We Are Called to Be a Movement. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign was, uh, let's talk about that for a moment, if we could, Reverend, and I'm particularly uh, thinking about the fact that you are, shall I use this word advisedly, resurrecting what uh, Reverend Martin Luther King wanted to do and really to some extent failed to do because of the death of Robert Kennedy and what was not achieved uh, with the Poor People's Campaign. But you're moving it forward and you're moving it forward in a virtual way because of COVID-19. Um, I'm just wondering again, if you would make the argument that Reverend King made about nonviolence here. A lot of people would respond to what you've just said about how we have to fight death by saying, by any means necessary, uh, Malcolm X's credo, or violence is necessary. Um, why do this nonviolently, and what do you hope will be accomplished by the Poor People's Campaign that you're leading? Well, first of all, let me just say, people think about violence uh, um, uh, in terms of physical violence. Um, but the reality is Dr. King interpreted the violence in the street and said that riots in the street were the voice of the unheard. But if you keep reading, he said that social progress and social justice is the absolute deterrent uh, for riots and for violence. Um, and so what Dr. King said is we must not, if, you, if you're going to critique the violence in the street and be against it as he was and as we are, uh, you also have to be as vigorous in critiquing the violence of public policy. Uh, the violence of injustice. And that's why it is important for us to start examining public policy 
in terms of a virus. Coretta Scott King said that violence is denying children education, violence is denying health care, violence is denying uh, union rights and, 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 and the right to organize. But she also said an apathetic attitude that refuses to address these other forms of violence is a form of violence. And so when we have a culture right now in America, the Poor People's Campaign lifts this up. Uh, and while we choose to organize nonviolently, but, but nonviolently doesn't mean non-intense. It doesn't mean without tension. It doesn't mean uh, uh, without a kind of marvelous militancy, as Dr. King also talked about. It means being committed. It means, when necessary, even being willing to submit to civil disobedience and, and mark in the street. And the, they used to sing in the civil rights movement, everybody has a right to live. And before this campaign fails, we all go down to jail because everybody has a right to live. Uh, uh, that rose from, you know, um, uh, the, one of the founders of nonviolent civil disobedience, Henry David Thoreau, uh, where he talked about, you know, the need at times to do this. Now, in addition to that, let's look at the violent policies. There are 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country. That's 43% of this nation. And it does not have to be and 700 people die every day from poverty, a quarter million a year. That's policy violence. 80 million people who are underinsured or uninsured, and for every 500,000 people, several thousand people die from the lack of insurance. And we're the only of the wealthiest countries that does not uh, give health care based on your humanity and your body, but attaches it to your job. That's violence. There's 62 million people in this country who make less than a living wage. Congress never has made less than a living wage. They guarantee themselves health care and living wages and, and pensions, uh, uh, a, a big, massive pension. 62 pe million people get up every day, work for less than a living wage. There's not a county in this country where you can work a minimum wage job and afford a basic two-bedroom apartment. That's violent. Four million families get up every day and can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. That's violent. We spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on our defense budget. Our defense budget is more than uh, China and North Korea, Iran, and Iraq combined. And we spend less than 16 cents of every discretionary dollar on infrastructure, healthcare, and education. Those things are public violence. And then the refusal to, to address them, the refusal to talk about poverty in the public square and have debates about policy, the refusal to, to have any camp, presidential camp, uh, debates about poverty that's affecting 143 million people or about racism that has in it violence toward people is what Otto Swama at MIT calls attention violence. So what we have to do is decide we're going to stop being a country of policy violence. You know, Dr. King also said, and it was sad to say, my country is the greatest purveyor of violence. Now, a lot of people didn't like him when he said that and walked away from him, but his words are still true. And because we are not going to become what we fight, that's why we're nonviolent. But that doesn't mean non-controversial. That means non-tension. It doesn't mean we, we, we just go along to get along. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, represents this poor people, the agency of poor people, poor white farmers from Kansas, connecting with Black people from Alabama, connecting from people in upstate New York, collecting, connecting with Latino meat packers, connecting with women who have lost their children because states didn't uh, expand health care, who decided 
that we have to address five interlocking injustices, systemic racism in all of its forms, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism that chooses not to address these issues as moral issues and violations of our constitutional promises. Once again, let me remind listeners that we are talking with Reverend William Barber, and he'll be preaching at the National Cathedral on June 14th, which will be streamed online, and also the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, a digital gathering will take place on the 20th of June. If you'd like to join us, I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. If you'd like to talk to the Reverend or have a question for him, the number again to call is 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. read your new book, uh, Reverend Barber, which I would commend uh, to listeners and also wanted to talk about how you've combined uh, in, well, particularly the Psalms, but specifically Psalm 118 with Luke 4 from the New Testament, uh, to talk about really a revival of uh, placing stones, rejecting the cornerstones that we now have for our civilization with new stones or different kinds of stones, but based on poor people being the stones. In other words, not only poor people, but the rejected and those who have been treated inhumanely and those who have been outsiders. These are the people you are calling to a new movement. Well, this is the, you know, the, the, the deep theological meaning. When you look in the scriptures, uh, God is often portrayed as working through the very people that society pushes aside. Uh, that the politics of God looks at a culture and asks the question, how are you treating the children? How are you treating women? How are you treating the poor? How are you treating the immigrant? How are you treating the least of these? That, that is the measurement of a great society. And the great Jewish text, Psalm 18, it says, the stone that the builders rejected have now become the cornerstone. And that text has, and, and then it says, and this is the day the Lord has made. You know, that, that scripture is talking about people who've been rejected for various and sundry uh, reasons actually in god has a way of bringing them together to be the cornerstones of a new society and then of course in luke 4 uh, when jesus starts his ministry jesus locates the gospel uh, among the poor the brokenhearted the imprisoned the oppressed uh, those that have been bruised and then a category called those that have been, have been made to feel unacceptable and he declares, this is the focus of the gospel. And so as I was preaching that sermon in St. John uh, Divine Cathedral, uh, I was trying to articulate that in this, that the hope for this nation right now is among those who mourn and those who've been pushed to society. If we listen to the mourning, we know what kind of public policies are right to change uh, uh, the situations people experience it. But also, it has always been from among the rejected that we've had a moral revival. It was the rejected slaves like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass that led in the freedom movement. It was the rejected women uh, that weren't allowed to vote that led in the women's suffrage movement. It was rejected workers that took on the gilded age and took on uh, 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 corporate monopolies and pushed the country to do uh, differently. It was rejected preachers 
who formed the social gospel movement in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Uh, it was rejected uh, people uh, who formed the civil rights movement, who, the, 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 the very people who were the plaintiffs for the Brown versus Board of Education were people who had been rejected by the system. Uh, it was a community that was rejected that raised up in Montgomery and started a massive civil rights movement. Uh, and so in this moment, we are saying that the poor and the sick and those impacted by systemic racism, whether it be Black people, Latino people, or First Nation people, uh, are those who have been impacted by ecological devastation, those who have been impacted negatively by the war economy, they represent, we represent the rejected of this society. And there's this power when the rejected get together. We used to call it we the people. But even more than just we the people, it is those who have been most hard hit by the violent public policy. When they begin to stand up and they begin to say no, no more. When they begin to, to challenge the systems, Dr. King knew it. Uh, he said that every time uh, there's a potential for black and white people, poor people to work together to bring the beloved community into being, to challenge our society. He said the aristocracy and the bourbon class deliberately sow division to keep poor blacks and poor whites from coming together. Well, when the rejected resist that, when poor and low-income white people realize they are among the rejected, just like black and, 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 and poor and low-wealth people are among the rejected, there 61% of all black people that are poor and low wealth, but there are also 66 million white people that are poor and low wealth. And realize, real, and when they realize that they are allies and not adversaries, and that there are forces that play them against each other so that they can control them, when the rejected realize the power of them coming together, then the rejected have always played a major role in fundamentally shifting the direction and the course of the nation and the world. And I believe in that book that when I wrote, we are called to be a movement. We're not just called to say somebody else ought to do it. We are called to be a movement. And I'm going to be uh, called in just a moment to go to a break here. And there are a lot of people, want, <laughs> a lot of people want to talk to you and I want to give them an opportunity to do that. But I just want to get quickly before we go to the break, your thoughts about uh, the recent photo op of our president, you mentioned St. John's Church, and he was standing in front of there with, I guess, his great aunt's Bible, which was upside down. Well, that was the one in D.C. I was at St. John in New York. but he Yeah, was that there. was the, the St. Right. John's in, in, in the nation's right. capital. But, mm -hmm. but I was struck by something you said about many of the evangelical Christians who were allied with the president. You said there's so much... Uh, in the Bible about empathy, about justice, uh, about poverty, uh, and not that much about abortion and homosexuality, but you wouldn't know that uh, the way some of the preachers uh, all do respect to other members of the clergy yeah. like yourself, uh, but the way they go on about uh, homosexuality and abortion. <laughs> well, if you notice, they a lot of times talk about what they feel or they say God generically, not Jesus and not the scriptures, or they pull out one or two texts. There are over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible to say the ultimate concern for a moral society and the ultimate concern for the love of God is how you treat the poor. Reverend, you if you'll hold that thought, we are coming up on a break. Uh, I keep thinking about feed my sheep, uh, the words mm -hmm. of Jesus, which uh, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. really ought to resonate uh, in many people's minds. Uh, we will come back with the Reverend and we'll try to take some of your calls. Uh, many people want to talk to the Reverend. We'll get to as many of your calls as we can. Reverend William Barber, again, is president of Repairers of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, author of a new book called We Are Called to Be a Movement. He's also a MacArthur Genius Award winner and pastor of Greenleaf 
Christian Church in North Carolina. And my friend, uh, uh, Cornell West says he's the closest we have to Martin Luther King. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Reverend William Barber, and he is a MacArthur Genius Award winner and pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church in North Carolina. He'll be preaching at the National Cathedral on June 14th, which will be streamed online, and also the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, which will be a digital gathering. It'll take place on the 20th of June. If you'd like to join us with Reverend Barber, the number to call is 866-733-6786. And let's have a caller. Andrea, good morning. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I agree with everything being said, and I don't think it can be done in a piecemeal fashion. The problems are so deep, we need a national social justice fund that would be funded by a 1% national sales tax, perhaps a 1% property surcharge. And this money must go to not only police reform, also prison reform, housing rehabilitation, school rehabilitation, health care, child care, rent subsidies, commercial development in all needy communities. I taught in the South Bronx in 1967 to 1969, and nothing has changed in 52 years. This cannot be done piecemeal. It's got to be done nationally. Andrea, let me ask uh, Reverend Barber what he thinks about the idea you've just put forward. Reverend Barber? Well, in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, let me share with your listener what we're doing. Uh, we've been organizing for three years now. The first thing we did was an audit of America called the Souls of Poor Folk. And we did an audit of all five of the interlocking injustices because we wanted to get the right numbers. And we quickly found out that when people say there's 39 million poor people in this country, that's not true. 140 million poor and low wealth, 43% of the nation, when you do the calculations the way that we've done at Columbia and Harvard. Additionally, what we did was a budget. We actually put together a budget, and we worked with some of the best economists and best impacted people to put together a budget that takes on the lie of scarcity. Because every time folks say we have to raise taxes in order to do it, it's a lie. And we've seen it in this pandemic because we they found $3 trillion for corporations right off the bat and before we even got deep into the pandemic. Secondly, we wanted to show what, what doing right, as Joseph Sicklitz says, the cost of poverty is worse than the cost of fixing. So we wanted to show what would happen if you put living wages as a mandate, what, how many billions of dollars that would immediately add to just the gross domestic uh, product. Then the third thing we did was we, we put together an omnibus bill that takes all five of these areas and we have action steps. My, your call is right. This, this, the changes must be deep and sweet, but not left and right, just simply right and wrong. Uh, we say that where we are now is morally indefensible, constitutionally inconsistent, and economically insane. And so we've put together a full platform. You can go to www.poorpeople's.com. Uh, campaign.org, or you can go to www.june2020, because we have a a audit, we have a budget, and we have a full agenda that looks at all five of these areas as interlocking injustices, that you can't separate little pieces of them out, but you must address them. Now, what happens in the political arena, my friend, 
is that when you go before Congress and other folk to make a demand, they'll say, well, what one thing do you want? And what we have to say is the corporations got three trillion things. So don't ask poor people what one thing we want when in fact is it, it, the, the problems are deep and sweeping and they require a substantial change and change that is possible. We have everything needed and we know the money, the resources is right there in the defense budget. We have the, and, 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 and without even raising taxes, we have everything we need. We just need the moral will and the moral movement to make it happen. It is a, it is a, it is a distortion to say that we can't fix these problems. What we see now are matters of public policy choice. They are not just automatic predestined things that have to exist. Reverend Barber, a key question from a listener named Angela. How do we keep the momentum going and not let it die? She wants to know from you. Well, I think you can't just look at the momentum that you see right now. That's a misnomer that people are making. They're saying, oh, we're seeing all of this now. First of all, when did this happen? It happened in the midst of COVID when people were already experiencing great death and mourning and unnecessary death. It happens in a context when we already had 700 people dying a day from poverty. A lot of people were hurting and broken even before this. And then we see this lynching on TV, if you will. And, and, and everybody, many people can identify with the I can't breathe. Many, it, it, it's like that is a watershed moment. But don't make any mistake that this moment just happened. There was organizing before this moment. Black Lives Matter organized before this moment. Poor People's Campaign was organizing before this moment. This, we don't always get to choose where the lightning strikes, but, but don't ever think the fire catches just because the lightning struck. There was already kindling there. Uh, what, what the great hero in this particular instance is the young girl that wouldn't move, that kept rolling the camera. Now, what we must do is not misappropriate the mass movement around the country and think that all it's about is police reform because that you cannot just address racism in that way. Secondly, we must also make sure that the ask are not too small. Uh, that's why right now we're examining the congressional bill that was dropped. Some people are already saying there are great parts of it that are great, but until we have a federal law that will ensure prosecution for murder, in the case of where police uses discrimination or racial intent, until they know that they can't just, uh, they, don't, they have to worry about more than just the state government where murder normally is handled, but also federal oversight, then some of these things will not be deterred because people will always believe they can finagle their way to get off. And so how do we keep the movement going? Well, we built from the bottom up. The Poor People's Campaign has been building among poor white folk in Appalachia and black folk in the Delta, Mississippi, and so forth and so on for over three years. You have to build a, a, a movement to hold a movement. You have to build a movement to hold the movement so, so that when, even, when after the mass protests are no longer there, the work can continue. So we've built 45 coordinating committees in, in 45 states, the District of Columbia. We've organized 16 religious bodies and denominational groups of every, from Sikhs to Muslims to Christians to Jews. We've organized 100 supporting organizations. But the thing that we've done the most, we think, is hold it. We have poor and impacted people leading in the states. They are in the center. Every coalition, every coordinating committee has tri-chairs. Every coordinating committee is building power and connecting at least 30,000 people deep dive connected to the movement. Every coordinating committee is registering people to vote for the movement 
in poor and low wealth communities and because of the power of poor and low wealth people. If just 15% of poor and low wealth people met, registered to vote and voted, we fundamentally shift the power structure of this country. So you build deep at the bottom and you build a movement that can hold a movement. That's how you continue to, to do this. So that these 14, these 14 days of protest also have connected with them a mandate. And we must demand that the public policy uh, operatives uh, hear the cries and turns the cries and the moans of the people into real public policy and not just a little bit of public policy to make people go home and be quiet. I don't think that's going to work anymore. Reverend Barber, let me commend the work you're doing. Uh, I think it's extraordinary. And uh, I'm sorry that you're going to have to be leaving us. I know you have other another commitment, but I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. I especially want to talk with you sometime about your faith. I know, and many people probably don't know this about you, you suffer from an arthritic condition that is constantly in pain. And I want to talk with you about how you keep your faith and how you keep your hope. And I hope we can do that again. I, I will do it. And I'll tell you what I'd love to do because the movement and the movement, we believe in building a stage for the people. I'd like to bring on a couple of people. I'd like to bring on that coal miner from Kentucky and that black uh, woman from Mississippi Delta so they can talk to you about why they have connected and they come on with me. I'd be glad to do it. Let's do it for a whole hour if we can. And I also want to just say to folks, go to www.june2020, sign up. We've sent out 50 million invites. It's going to be live streamed all over uh, MSNBC and every platform of social media known to humankind. The four goals is we're going to put a face on these numbers. They're going to testify and tell their stories of pain, but they also are going to lift up the solutions. People talk about where do we go from here? Come, come to June 2020. And then they're going to be talking about building power and what poor and low wealth people are going to do to organize Last of my friend, uh, we have people that are coming to introduce some of the testify. They don't want to speak, but they want to introduce the people we need to hear from in this country, like Bishop Perry with the Episcopal Church, like Rabbi Pressner with the Reformed Jews, like former Vice President Al Gore and, and uh, David Oyelowo, who played King in the movie Selma, and Erica Alexander, who played on The Cosby Show and played on Living Color, and Wanda Sykes and Jane Fonda, and, and others who are coming to not take the stage. This is very different. They are not coming to speak on behalf of people. They are coming to say, did you know these are the realities in our country? Did you know these numbers? And now that you know, hear, listen, see the people who have decided that they are the movement and that they are organizing and then come alongside them and join so that we can fundamentally build a movement to change the narrative of this country to build power, and to ultimately change the direction of public policy. I wish you Godspeed, as they say, in your world. And I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my friend. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.